don't you hate that feeling when you, when you realize that you don't have what you thought you had? Have you ever had that feeling? You realize too late, this isn't what I thought I had. It's, it's something different. It's something worse than I thought I had. It's a terrible feeling. One of, one of our staff members recently had that experience towards the end of last year. And uh, the story was shared, uh, it was shared last year, but I feel like I need to uh, just drive the points home and, uh, cause, because it illustrates my point this morning so well. <clears throat> so it was a cool, misty morning in September. And uh, we have staff coffee every Monday morning between 8 and 8.30, uh, coffee and uh, staff meeting with, most of, with our on-site staff. And uh, Paul is very skittish around the coffee table. He's a little bit like a gazelle at a waterhole. He's been burnt a few times. He's wary of the crocodiles. Uh, he's had a few cold coffees. He's had some salty coffees. So he's, he's very wary. This morning, this morning, however, I had something different in mind. I brought with me to work an egg. <laughs> I made Paul his coffee. I was behind the machine. I made Paul his coffee and uh, stuck the egg, dropped the egg into the coffee, went and gave Paul his coffee. Obviously, he's now very wary of what's happening, and uh, I gave it to him and then walked away because unbeknownst to him, we set up a hidden camera to film his reaction and his face when he realized that he didn't have what he thought he had. And uh, first sip, it was very ginger. The second sip was very ginger. Then he realized it's not cold. It's not salty. Clearly, everything's okay. And uh, he got to about the 10th sip, and he realized everything is not okay. <laughs> Clearly, he, he realized, in fact... In fact, Stu, can you just take 10 seconds? Just show us the video because I want you, I want to understand the face. I want you to understand, I want you to have a picture in your mind of the face that you make when you realize that you don't have what you thought you had. But I want you to remember that face because it's a face that, that's been etched into my brain, uh, because I watch the video probably twice a week. Um, every time I'm feeling down, all I have to do is just pull out my phone and have a little look at the video. But I want to ask the question of you this morning. How do you know that you have what you think you have? How do you know that you have had what you think you have had? Let's put it into the context of our series. We're looking at a series called Encounters with Jesus. How do you know that you've had an encounter with Jesus? If you think you've had an encounter with Jesus, how do you know that you've had an encounter with Jesus? How do you know that you haven't had an encounter with Preacher? How do you know that you haven't had an encounter with a church? How do you know you haven't had an encounter with a young girl who was miraculously healed? So those things are all good. But you're going to be left wondering in a few months or a few weeks or a few days' time, has somebody put a raw egg in the bottom of my coffee? Something's going to drop and you're going to realize I don't have what I thought I've had. Got good news for you. So the reason I say I've got, I'm excited is because I've got good news. I believe the Bible gives us a foolproof way to tell whether what you have in your cup is a strong, full-bodied, single-origin coffee or a raw egg with a little bit of coffee on top of it. I believe the Bible shows us very clearly what happens when we have an encounter with Jesus. The Bible gives us clear parameters of what to expect when we encounter Jesus. And we've been looking at a couple of them over the last few weeks. And I want to look at another story, another instance in the Bible this morning of where Jesus encountered a person and what the implications for their life were and the implications that it has on us. If you've got your Bibles here, you can turn to John chapter 4 with me. And we're gonna, it'll come up on the screen. 
Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sichar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour which means it was about midday. A woman from Samaria came down to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. I like to use a strong voice for Jesus. He was a strong man. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying it to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty again and have to come here to draw, to draw water. She's burdened by having to come and draw water from a well every day. Jesus said to her, <clears throat> Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband. For you have, have, you have had five husbands, and the one, you have, the one that you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, So I perceive that you are a prophet. The first instance of woman's intuition in the Bible. I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who you speak to am he. Skip through to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many of them believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you've said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that indeed this is the Savior of the world. So let's pick a few things out of the story. Look at this encounter with uh, what happened to this woman's life when she encountered Jesus and what the implications are for us. Firstly, the woman herself. Number one, she's a Samaritan. Um, Many of you might know and some of you might not know the Jews, the situation between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans uh, were hated by the Jews. The Jews thought of the Samaritans as dogs. The Jews thought of the Samaritans in much the same way that the Nazis thought of, very ironically, the Jews. This was the relationship that, that Jews had with Samaritans. So firstly, she was a Samaritan. Secondly, she was a woman. Now, this story takes place in around 30 to 31 BC uh, in the Middle East. A Middle Eastern woman in around 30 BC has no rights. She has no standing in society. 
So she's from a race of Samaritans who are despised, and she's a woman who's more despised. She is, uh, she is the most vulnerable person in society, uh, as far as Jesus is concerned. In fact, uh, being a woman, Jesus has no natural business talking to her. Men were, un- were not allowed to talk to uh, women who were not accompanied by a man. So a woman by herself, Jesus, is, in the natural, shouldn't have been talking to her. He had no natural business talking to her, but he had heaven's business to talk to her. See, Jesus is always drawn to vulnerable people. Today, if you feel that you have no standing in society, if you feel that if you have, as if you have no voice, if you feel as if you have no way out of the situation that you're in, Jesus is seeking an encounter with you. He isn't one of the crowd who's written you off. He isn't one of your family members who pretend that you don't exist. He's seeking you out. He wants to talk with you. And he wants to do for you the same thing that he did for this woman. He gives, he gives her her dignity back. If you're in that place today, I want, you, I want you to know that Jesus sees you and that he always seeks out the vulnerable. If you think that you've had an encounter with Jesus, but you still haven't had your dignity returned to you, it's possible that you've had an encounter with a preacher. It's possible that you've had an encounter with the church. It's possible that you've been introduced to Jesus through a preacher or through the church, but you haven't had an encounter with Jesus. The church and the preachers are there to facilitate an introduction to Jesus. They're not there to take the place of Jesus. The story, the story of a young lady who was miraculously healed from a car accident is there to facilitate an introduction to Jesus, not there to take the place of Jesus. When we elevate that story above where it should be, what happens is we get disappointed. We end up with an egg at the bottom of our coffee. With that same, I want you to picture that look on your face when you realize, I don't have what I thought I had. See, this woman could have just given Jesus the water that he asked for and then gone on living her life, still voiceless, still without dignity, still without any social standing. But she doesn't. She engages with Jesus. At first, she's curious. Jesus starts asking her questions, and she, and she uh, answers, and she asks, and then she asks, and then she asks a question, and she's curious, and then she leans in and engages Jesus. And that's when her life has changed. And you might be sitting here because you're curious. You've heard stories about Jesus. You've heard stories about him changing and touching somebody else's life, your wife's life, your friend's life, a young girl's life that you met on Facebook. You might, have, you might have heard stories about Jesus and it's made you curious. It's only the beginning. If you've never moved from curiosity and an, and an introduction to an encounter with Jesus, you're going to be left with a look on your face in a, in a, in a couple of weeks' time. So apart from leaving her with her dignity, uh, there's, two other, there's two other things that result from this encounter with Jesus. And I believe that, that they will result from every encounter with Jesus. Firstly is worship, and secondly is mission. Every encounter with Jesus will result in worship, and it will result in mission. How do you know what you think you've had? Because an encounter with Jesus will result in worship, and it will result in wor- mission. If you are not a worshiper, and you are not on mission then it's possible that you haven't encountered Jesus. If you are here today, and that's you, that's okay. There's people that sit in church for 25 or 30 years and never move past an introduction with Jesus to an encounter with Jesus. There's people that sit in church for the first time and get introduced and have an encounter. And Jesus is able to engage and have an encounter with both of those people from one end of the spectrum to the other. And if you are sitting anywhere in the middle of that spectrum, that's okay. Today I have good news for you. 
This might sound a bit harsh, but I believe that we can make an accurate assessment of our lives for ourselves by these two yardsticks, worship and mission. If they're missing from your life, there's a very real possibility that you've had never had an encounter with Jesus. So let's look at these two yardsticks. Firstly, worship. I'm going to take a few minutes just to talk about worship. This is a worshiping family. We are a, we are a worshiping, we are people who worship God. The elders sat down a few years ago and uh, we wanted to assess what was the yardsticks, uh, what was the candlesticks in this church? What, what were the things that over our 118 year history had defined us, that were in our DNA? What, what were those things? And we identified three things, leadership, mercy and justice, and worship. Worship is, is uh, in this community's DNA. We are, we are a worshiping people. Uh, we understand what it means to worship and we love to worship. And I want to talk to you about two aspects of worship this morning. Firstly, singing, and secondly, worship. Because they can be very different things. They are very different things. So many people think that what we do on a Sunday when we sing together is worship. And it is, but it's only a very small part of worship. Worship, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Worship is about ascribing worth or value to something. Worship is about ascribing worth or value to something. So when I place worth on something above something else, in essence what I'm doing is worshipping that thing. Which is why it's possible for me to worship my kids. It's possible for us to worship our jobs. It's possible for us to worship our money because we ascribe worth and we ascribe value to that thing above other things, which means we're worshipping it. Some of us worship our emotions. We worship how I feel right now. We worship how uh, I worship my emotions in that I I feel, my my feelings are everything. I base my life on how I feel. Some of us worship our minds, how we rationalize. If I'm able to rationalize and come up with a logical explanation or an answer for something, I place that, I I ascribe the most value and the most worth to that. All of these things that I've mentioned, our spouses, our kids, our jobs, our emotions, and our minds are good things. But when we ascribe worth and value to them above Jesus, they become the object of our worship. And worship is always about the object, never about the worshiper. Worship is always about the, about the object that is having worth ascribed to it, not about the person ascribing worth to it. Otherwise, it's not worship. Because if, I, if I'm placing uh, the, highest, the highest worth on what I'm doing, I'm the worshiper, that, then I be- start worshiping myself. What does Jesus say to this woman in verse 21 that we read of, of John chapter 4? Those who worship the Father must worship in spirit and they must worship in truth. Those who worship the Father must worship in spirit and they must worship in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit? I believe the spirit speaks to that which is eternal in us. When we get saved or born again, our spirits, which were once dead, become alive to us, become alive in us. A man called Nicodemus says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And he says, how do I, be, how do I enter my mother's womb and become born again? He says, no, Nicodemus, you were born physically, and now you need to be born spiritually. You were born physically, and now you need to be born spiritually, which is where we get the term born again of. Born of the flesh, born physically, and born of the spirit, born spiritually. And the Spirit is that which is in us, which is eternal, that which will live forever with Jesus. What Jesus is saying here, you must worship in spirit, is he's saying that we must worship, our worship must be based on that which is eternal, not that which is temporal. The only way for us to worship in spirit is to worship that which is eternal, 
And the only one who is eternal is Jesus. If we are ascribing the highest value and worth to something that is temporal, like my emotions, like my mind, like my kids, like my money, if I'm ascribing the highest value and worth to that, all of those things are temporal. They will pass away. They will change. My mind will change. Lord knows. My mind will change. My emotions will change. Your, your emotions will change. Your job will change. If you are ascribing the highest value and worth to those things, you are worshipping that which is temporal, not which is, that which is eternal. You're not worshipping in spirit. To worship in a spirit, we have to ascribe worth to that which is eternal, which is Jesus. The only one who is unchanging. Jesus also says to her that we must worship in truth. I believe that, uh, that what this means is that the words that we speak must match up to the life that we live. The words that we speak must match up to the life that we live. Uh, in James chapter 3, James says, in James 3 verse 9, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse, every human, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both, uh, salt water and, can both fresh water and salt water come from the same spring? Brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives? Or a grape vine figs. Neither can salt, a salt spring produce fresh water. When what we say when we are singing in worship doesn't match up to the way that we live, we're not living, we're not worshiping in truth. God isn't interested in lip service. So a person is saying the right thing at the right time. God's not looking for, he's not looking for you to say the right words at the right time. He's not interested in that. What he's interested in is how you live and that you and that the way that you speak matches up to how you live. So worship is singing, but it's certainly not only singing. Far from it. Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says this. Therefore I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies, dedicating all of yourselves and set apart as a living sacrifice. Present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and well-pleasing to God, which is your rational, your logical and your intelligent act of worship. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 17 says this, Whatever you do, no matter what it is, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and in dependence on Him. And in dependence, not independence. In independence on Him, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. God isn't interested in how well we sing. God isn't interested in how I sound or how I look when I sing. He's got far better singers than me. And far, far better singers than you. <laughs> what God is interested in is how I live. If, I, if I'm presenting all of myself to Him all of the time as a living sacrifice, if I'm literally dying to myself and to my will and to my desires, then Paul argues, Romans chapter 12, that this is my rational, my reasonable act of worship. Friends, isn't this what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane before He went to the cross? Not my will, but yours be done. He laid his life down as a sacrifice. And so the thought that I had was we've always taught and been taught that what held Jesus on the cross was his love for me and his love for you. And friends, I'm not so sure if, I, if, if that is true. What I believe held Jesus on the cross was his act of worship to God the Father and his submission to the will of the Father far more than his love for me. That's my thought. That's my thought. See, God isn't looking for singers. He's looking for worshippers. Jesus tells us, woman, the Father is looking for worshippers. 
not for singers. How can you tell if you've had an encounter with Jesus and not just the preacher or the church? Because you'll find yourself becoming a worshiper. And worship is the result of an encounter with Jesus. We said that singing isn't worship, but it's a big part of our worship when we get together. On, on a Sunday, we, we sing as part of our worship together because it's the thing that we can most easily do in unison when we are together as an expression of our worship. Also, when we look at the book of Revelation, we see that around the throne of God, there's continuous singing. As, there's, as God's holiness is revealed to the living creatures that are around the throne, we see that there's continuous singing in, in, in heaven. So what, what we do on earth, our singing... Although it's not worship in its entirety, it is absolutely a part of worship. So when there is an opportunity to sing, go for it. When you have an opportunity to worship God in song, go for it. Don't hold back. See, when I make myself, and, uh, when I make myself the object of my worship, when I place the highest, ascribe the highest value or worth on how I'm feeling and the songs that I like to sing, the, the style that I like to sing them in, then I get caught up in how I'm feeling, and I, and I don't. If I don't sense God's presence at a certain time, and I do sense it at another time, all I'm doing is anchoring my worship in the temporal. I'm not anchor, I'm not anchoring my worship in the eternal nature of Jesus. Friends, I, I I have never had a bad worship time in my life. I've had some bad music. I've sat under some bad music. I've been part of some bad music too. But I've never had a bad worship time because what the band looks like, what the band is doing is not determining my worship of God. My worship is not anchored in the temporal. It's anchored in the eternal. A man by the name of Alan Frau used to always teach. Uh, I remember him teaching when I was young that when it comes to singing and worship, there's two types of people, thermometers and thermostats. And what a thermometer does is it assesses the temperature. This one's too hot. This one's too cold. This one's too lukewarm. This one's not nice. I like this song. I don't like that song. I like the person on electric. I don't like the person on drums. And, we, and we, what happens is we become assessors of worship. We become thermometers. We tell what the temperature is, and we give, then we give a critique on it. And, it. and that determines whether or not we engage in the things that are eternal. And the thermostat regulates the temperature. A thermostat is not worried about what the temperature outside is. The thermostat regulates the internal temperature. It sets the temperature. An introduction to Jesus might result in singing when the temperature is just right. An encounter with Jesus will result in me setting my life's internal temperature to worship. The second thing that results from this woman's encounter with Jesus is mission. John chapter 4 and verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And so they went out to the town and were coming to him. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. So the first evangelist in the New Testament is a Samaritan, and she's a woman. A Samaritan and a woman. How can we define this word mission? So you might have heard the word mission, and you might have misunderstood it. You might not have heard it. So this morning I want to just help you to understand it very quickly. How do we, how do we define this word mission? 
So the correct term for mission is a Greek word, missio dei. Missio dei, the mission of God. Dei being God, the mission of God. So we can correctly define mission as the mission of God. And so we need to see what God's mission is and then join him in his mission. That's the, that's the, the mission that I'm talking about. In 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, John says that the reason that Jesus, as the Son of Man, was revealed to, was to destroy all the works of the evil one. The reason that Jesus came to the earth was to destroy all the works of the evil one. So Jesus' mission, the Missio Dei, the mission of God on earth, was to destroy the works of the evil one, of the devil. Both Paul and I spoke and, and preached in December on uh, what happened at the fall of man. We looked at four primary relationships that were severed at the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. We looked at a relationship with God, with creation, with community, and with self. Those four uh, relationships were the primary relationships that were the work of the devil that were severed in creation. And so Jesus' mission on earth was to restore those four primary relationships so that man could flourish. You with me? I'm not going to go into the whole teaching. It, it's, it is on our website. There's podcasts available. Have a go and have a, have a listen. So the end goal of our salvation is not to save only a person's soul. The end goal of our salvation is not only to save a person's soul. It's to save his marriage. It's to save his thought life. It's to save his finances, his sense of self-worth, his kids, his business. The whole person is to be redeemed. That is the mission of God on earth, is to redeem the whole person. This is a spiritual act, but it has very practical implications for how we conduct a mission, how we look at mission. It means that mission is not going to another country to tell others about Jesus. It means it's not necessarily only telling our neighbors that Jesus loves them. It's about redeeming everything that we do and using it to counteract the diabolos or the pulling apart what happened when sin entered the world, the mission of God. We have a great example of this in Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calls uh, Peter and his brother Andrew. They are fishing, and, and Peter, uh, Jesus says to them, uh, and if you, are, if you have been in church for a while, you would have heard these words. P Jesus says to Peter, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you a, a fisher of men. And uh, we've understood this for, for years as that, that, the same mission that God gave to Peter is the mission that, that, uh, that Jesus gave to Peter. is the same mission that we should be doing. We should be fishing for people. We should be throwing bait out and then reeling. And then somebody clever said, no, we shouldn't be using rods. We should be using nets because then we get more people in. And that's how we fish for men. And, and we've always understood that that is, what, uh, God's, that is what our mission is, is to be fishers of men. And I think that's a small part of it. But I believe what Jesus was saying to Peter is a lot bigger than that. What Jesus was saying to Peter is, Peter, the very thing that you do every day, you're a fisherman, the thing that you do every day, I'm going to redeem it. And you're going to do it not for the sake of making money, not for the sake of making a living, but for the sake of winning souls. If, if Peter had been an accountant, Jesus would have said to him, Peter, I'm going to teach you to balance people. I'm going to make you a fisher of man. If Peter had been a lawyer, Jesus would have said to him, Peter, I'm going to teach you not to swindle people. Not lawyers today, lawyers in 30 BC. There were. <laughs> the very thing that you do every day, you build decks every day. You counsel people in rehab every day. 
You're a doctor. You're a lawyer. You're an accountant. You're a small business owner. You're a housewife. You're a stay-at-home mom. The thing that you do every day, I'm going to redeem it, and you're going to do it not for the purpose of making a living, but for the purpose of winning souls. To be engaged in mission doesn't mean that we have Christian companies. It means that the people who run them and the people that, who work in them are engaged and equipped in using everything that they do every day to reach people for Jesus. I think, we, I think we have a great example in our midst of this. A man by the name of Johann Vessels. Every time I think of people in mission, I think of Johann Vessels. He's a doctor in our midst. He is not just a healer of bodies. He's a healer of souls. When he, when he treats people, he gives them, he prescribes medicine, he prays for them, and he doesn't end up healing just their bodies. And invariably, he ends up healing their souls and ministering to them. See, the thing that he, he's not just a doctor to make a living, he's a doctor to win souls. What is it that you do today? God's not wanting you to do something else. What do you do? What is in your hands? Peter was a fisherman. That's what was in his hands. He allowed God to redeem it. And he fished and caught men. Martin Luther, who is one of the Christian reformers, said it like this. The Christian shoemaker does not do his duty by putting little crosses in his shoes, but by making excellent shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. So this work ethic, we, we have to allow this work ethic, a biblical work ethic, with Telling, simply telling the story of what Jesus has done for us. Isn't, this, isn't that what the Samaritan woman does? She simply goes and tells the town, this is what Jesus did for me, and the town believes. Many Samaritans believed. So don't worry so much about working in a Christian business or making your company a Christian company, if there even is such a thing. I don't know what that is. Worry far more about being a Christian in your company and watching for opportunities to tell people what God has done for you. I play squash every week with a man by the name of Wally Gertzmeyer. You plants at Life Changes Church that Mark von Pletzen leads in Cape Town. I play squash with him every week, and he likes to bring along with him a friend of his who's an atheist. Now, the way that I play squash, the way that we play squash with him is of the utmost importance. If I'm a bad sport throwing my racket around and cursing every time I lose a point, if I'm in his face every time I win a point, come on, in his face, rubbing it in every time I win a point or a game, I'm not going to have a very good testimony. See, it doesn't matter if I've got crosses, Christian crosses drawn on my squash racket. It doesn't matter if I've got a, a headband that says Jesus on it. I don't, by the way. I am in the market for one, though. If I've got crosses on my racket and a hairband that says Jesus, but I behave like a tool when I'm with him, what does it say about my testimony? What does it say about my witness? You see, how I play squash with unbelievers will tell you what I believe about mission. How you conduct yourself in your business will tell me and will tell you what you believe about mission. How you live with unbelievers will tell you everything that you need to know about what you believe about mission. If you do not live on mission, it's possible that you haven't had an encounter with Jesus. You may have been introduced to him, but you haven't had an encounter. The scripture in John chapter 4 goes on to say that the Samaritans were introduced to Jesus through this woman's testimony, and then they asked Jesus to stay with them for two more days. They had an encounter with him. See, Jesus is always seeking out the vulnerable, 
And what he's looking for is not only an introduction with him, but an encounter. An encounter with Jesus will always result in worship, and it will always result in mission. Today, I'm inviting you to have an encounter with Jesus, not an introduction. First of all, if you've never had an introduction to Jesus, if you're here and you've never had an introduction to Jesus, I'd love to introduce him to you. If you've, if you've only been born physically, if you've never been born spiritually, what we as Christians would call born again, if you, you might have heard that term, if you've only been born physically, you've never been born spiritually, I'd love to introduce you to Jesus, Namslanje, today. I know Paul's, uh, Paul said it, and, and, and I believe it. You've taken a very bold step to stand and to come to a crowd of people who, are, who look strange, who talk strange, uh, who do things that you don't understand, uh, a sea of strange faces. It's a bold step. We as Christians would call it a step of faith. You would call it a risk. You've taken a risk to be here, and you were brave. And I, I thank you and I honor you for your bravery. And I'm going to ask you to take another brave step, a braver step this morning. Those of us who are followers of Jesus are going to sit. And if you would like to be introduced to Jesus today, I'm going to ask you to come out of your seats and come stand in the front. I'd love to introduce you to Jesus. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to do that if that's you. If that's you here today. I want to make a fool of you in any way or sort. But I'd like you to take a bold stand as this woman did with Jesus if that's you this morning.